What's up you creepy fucks welcome to the let's talk horror channel with me bp we're here again another episode 2023 has been incredible so far that's a massive thank you to everyone that has gone and listened to the episodes that i've done so far this year and everything that i've bringing out for the let's talk horror channel but as i sit here recording this i've got a confession i'm fucking shitting myself not literally i mean i could do i hope not but i am literally shitting myself why because on this episode, I'm going old school. What does that mean? I'm doing a solo episode. Now, if you have been listening and you've been on this journey through this podcast, through this channel from the start, you know that the first, what, six or seven episodes that I released, they were all solo episodes. Not, no, There was no guest, it was just me. And what this podcast was, it was an outlet, an output for my creativity that I needed because I suffer massively, like so many of us in the world, from anxiety, crippling anxiety that really sometimes I struggle to do anything. And I was really, really struggling, like I am now, to be honest, and aren't we all? But, but when I needed something, this is what happened. And I started this horror podcast for that reason. And it really, really has been like medicine, like therapy for me. And as I said, when I started it, it was just solo episodes. And then six or seven episodes down the line, somebody was just like, I really like your show. I'd like to be a guest. And then more people kept asking me. And I was like, well, I don't know about this. I didn't really think about having guests on the show. This is just me talking about my love for this genre and the topics and films of it. I don't know if I need guests. Well, guess what happened? It turns out that I absolutely fucking love having guests on the show and I have been able to have conversations with some amazing people that now those episodes that I started off with doing solo ones that I felt comfortable with, well, now they're the ones that I don't feel that comfortable with. So as I said at the start, I'm sitting here now and in all honesty, I'm pretty nervous. Should I be? Should I not be? I don't know. Am I just so fucking boring on my own? I hope not. So, so please stay with me on this journey through this episode. As you know already, we're talking about misery because you clicked on it. That's why I know that you know that that's what the episode's about. You clicked on it. <laughs> and when I do these solo episodes, it, there's a reason why I do them and there's a reason why I pick the films. And misery has a reason. It, it is a film that has a strike me on a personal level and has meaning to me on a personal level rather than just i'm watching a film and that's all it means to me it, it doesn't it means more to me than that and i will explain why during this so let's get started i thought you were good paul but you're not good you're just another lying old dirty birdie and I don't think I'd better be around you for a while. And don't even think about anybody coming for you. Not the doctors, not your agent, not your family. Because I never called them. Nobody knows you're here. And you better hope nothing happens to me. Because if I die, 
you die. I'm your number one fan. There is nothing to worry about. You're gonna be just fine. I'll take good care of you. This isn't fair! He didn't get out of the cock-a-doody car! So Misery was released in 1990, and this film is directed by Rob Reiner, who you may also know from his other films such as Stand By Me, Spinal Tap, The Princess Bride, and obviously many more. And this film is starring James Kahn as Paul Sheldon, Kathy Bates as Annie Wilkes, Richard Farnsworth as Sheriff Buster, Francis Sternhagen uh, as Deputy Virginia, almost said vagina, Virginia, I apologise, Lauren Bacall as Marcia Sindel, Graham Jarvis as Libby, Jerry Potter as Pete, and Rob Reiner also has an uncredited cameo as the helicopter pilot. Now, IMDb, this sits at 7.8 out of 10 and 91% on Rotten Tomatoes. So you can tell that after all these years, people still love this movie. So now the Google synopsis. I know you love this. I love reading these. And when I copy and paste these, I'm not going to lie, copy and paste them. I don't read them before. So this is the first time I'm going to read this to you. A best-selling novelist is on his way home after completing his latest book. When he meets with a car accident, he is... Well, you can't... You can't meet a car accident, can you? I sort of... Well, I get what it means. But you can't meet... You would, Otherwise, you turn up at an accident and then just go, Hi, and then you've met a car accident. Does it make sense? I could be wrong. I'm, I might just be being an idiot. Anyway, he is rescued by an obsessed fan, only to discover that he is her prisoner. I mean, I think Google, you've done well. Reason being is, as the synopsis goes, that's quite good because it doesn't let you in for the tension and the terror and the dread you're fucking in for when you watch this film. So I think it did all right. But now I'm going to get into my synopsis. If you've listened to the show before, this is where I give you a more detailed, in-depth and funny as fuck look into what happens into the film. So the film opens with some typing and a tie into a later scene just to set it all up. That being obviously the cigarettes and the champagne. You'll get what I mean later. But now we get our first look at James Kahn, a guy you would never want to get in a fist fight with. And like that, he's off. He's off in his beautiful Mustang and he's feeling fucking good. But that doesn't last long because it's snowy as fuck. You know, like the typist though, snow, they say, don't go out in it. It's horrible. You can't drive in this. And then also your own brain says, don't go out in that snow. It looks fucking terrible. Well, guess what? I mean, James Kahn looks like the type of guy that could probably beat the shit out of snow any day of the week. So he does whatever he wants and he heads out. But unfortunately, we can already see what is going to happen. And just like that, in spectacular fashion, he loses control and does at least a billion car flips and then crash, bang, wallop. Then we cut away to Paul back at the office talking about his book. But then we cut quickly back to his bloody face where someone has come to his rescue and they are strong as fuck and they carry him away. Let's hope, though, that they are just a really nice person who will help him and not go crazy and cause him any harm at all. 
we hear a voice in the background, a nice comforting voice, telling Paul she is his number one fan. And then we see this angel's face, who is here to help Paul recover, because he looks like someone who's been in a car crash. So because of all this bloody snow, the phone lines are down. So they can't call anyone for help, but it's okay because Annie is here and she's done a bang up job so far, even though his feet and legs look like utter shit. We are now back at the office from earlier with some upper class lady who is concerned about Paul and she calls the sheriff to investigate. He seems like a really good man and his brain is already going, buzzing, looking for some excitement. Back at Annie's and she's giving Paul an old school razor shave and confessing to Paul how much she loves his books and decides to pop the question. Can she read his latest work he has in his bag? And of course he says yes. I mean, she just saved him, right? And she isn't a fucking mental at all. And she is absolutely over the moon. She seems such a nice person. Well... That is until, unfortunately, the next scene, we see them together and Annie doesn't seem happy at all. Paul asks why, and it's the first time we see this other side to Annie, a less nice side, and it's all because she doesn't like the swearing in his new book. And she goes cock-a-doodling fucking ballistic, and the soup goes everywhere, and Paul is now starting to think something may not be right with her. So the sheriff is now out looking for Paul's car, just in case he did have an accident. And even though his wife is trying to get a little bit frisky with him, he's all about business. And he gets her to stop the car as he sees a broken branch that only the eyes of an old wise owl would see. He investigates it further, but unfortunately, he just misses seeing the car. And on the way back, Annie drives past him. If only he knew what we knew. Annie is now home and she is a surprise. She's brought the new misery book and is talking bullshit about the doctors and phones and how we can't go out yet. Paul doesn't know this for sure, but obviously we do. She's fucking lying. Oh, and also Annie has a pet pig and guess bloody what? She's called Misery. Oh, and talking about misery so far, Annie is loving the new book. We now get a little bit of Annie's story where we learn about her husband leaving her and her nights reading Paul's misery novels when she was a nurse and you start to feel sorry for her. But in all honesty, Paul seems to be more concerned about his piss flying everywhere. But as night falls, we unfortunately see this other side of Annie again. But this time she's really fucking angry as he's only gone and killed Misery off in his new book. And Annie has not taken to this news well at all. And now we learn that Annie's intentions for Paul are not good and has not been trying to help him at all and sods right off leaving Paul home alone. So he decides to make a run for it. Sorry, that's that's a bad choice of words because he definitely can't he can't run because his legs are fucked. So so instead of that, he slithers like a cobra to the door, but it's bloody locked, obviously. Back at the sheriff's office, and his wife isn't trying to play with his dick anymore. <laughs> For now, anyway. And he's asking questions. He smells trouble. But now Annie is back home and is calmed down. Well, I mean, sort of, because now she's getting Paul to burn his book. But he's got other copies. It doesn't matter. Oh, no, that's that's wrong. It's the only fucking copy. Yeah, he's absolutely fucked. And he has to set it on fire. Because if he doesn't, it looks like Annie's probably just going to set him on fire instead. 
So he has no choice and he's properly gutted. You can see it in his little eyes. We suddenly, though, hear a helicopter and the sheriff is inside. He's here to save the day. Oh, no, he, basically, he sees nothing. Again, he's pretty good at that. He's just a useless bastard. You're going absolutely nowhere, Paul. So now he has to start thinking survival and he starts stashing his drugs. So Paul is going to have to get comfy because Annie has no plans on letting him go at all because she's now making him write a new book called Misery Returns. But she died, right? Yes, yeah, she, she did. But obviously, if anyone can bring her back, Paul can. She's gone and brought him everything he needs. Well, not everything because, you know, when he starts mentioning that she's brought in the wrong type of paper and it smudges, she gets pretty annoyed about it. She goes fucking mental again and chucks the paper on Paul's legs and it looks like it hurt. But Paul is now after a hair clip to open the locked door. Now Annie is pissed off right in a huff again. So he's definitely done this before. I mean, in all honesty, it's probably just something that James Kahn has definitely done before. And he knew all about, but he did it. He's out the room and gets on the phone immediately but unfortunately it's not even a real phone and the clumsy bastard nearly knocks over a little penguin ornament he manages to stash some more drugs but what he doesn't know is that annie is on her way home well until he does know that <laughs> and you can hear because he can hear her car so now he's in a proper rush against time to get back to his room will he make it yeah he does he does just in the nick of time and before I go any further, I do just want to say, look, I know that he wants to get out of there, but there is no way after all of this, he is not in absolute agony. So why does he spit the pills out and not take them? I mean, you know, he's definitely got enough to kill a horse by now that he's been stashing and he's just got some extra wine. So it's just something weird that I thought this guy must be fucking absolutely killing inside and outside. I mean, he's been through the shit, right? And then he spits out these tablets. Just fucking take them, mate. You'll be fine. Anyway, that's just me. Uh, let me know, you know, on the Instagram or on comments if you think the same thing as me. Probably not. Anyway, he's back to the film. And the sheriff is back in the copter and finally sees Paul's car, finally. And now is a proper investigation is afoot. So back at Annie's and Paul was hoping he had some top draw cocaine, but alas, it's just medication he presumably is going to try and drug Annie with. Spoiler, yes, he does try. But obviously for now, he's decided to start writing and already Annie is getting annoyed by, this, by his shit writing and again goes, goes cock a doody mental and makes him start it all again. After a rewrite, and Annie is now happier than a pig in shit. Not her pig, just a, another one, probably. And he's living the fucking dream, because a new version is just that bloody good. And Paul must be feeling a bit frisky, because he's asked Annie to have dinner with him. So Annie is getting in her best dress for the occasion, and delivers one hell of a meatloaf. But Paul is now putting the drugs into Annie's drink, but his plan is unfortunately foiled and his heart is absolutely fucking broken as she, she knocks it over and life for Paul is shit again. So back to right and we go and with nothing better for Paul to do with his time, he's working hard at it. Time passes in a little typewriting montage and he just can't bloody stop. And he is also working out big time to get strength back in his arms. 
Annie comes into the room and is proper sad because she knows Paul will leave soon and loves him so much and scares the absolute shite out of him because she's got a gun now, which she says, says that she's thinking about using. And this is another really sad side of her character. I, I always find, but like, you know, like that, she's off again. She's left the house and there's Paul is out of his room again, but this time to get a big knife. And on his way back to his room, he comes across Annie's clippings book, which he decides to have a look in, the nosy bastard, which has articles about her and unfortunately not nice ones as it leans towards her being a baby killer. So now Paul, understandably, is now on high alert and practicing his best Michael Myers knife stabs ready for when Annie returns, but it's bedtime. But then just like that, Annie stabs him with a needle. She knows he's been venturing out of his room and she has found his knife and everything he's been hiding. Basically, he's, he's absolutely fucked. And then she starts telling him a story about people who stole and what they used to do to them if they were caught. And basically this is the scene that we all know because it's one of the most fucked up scenes ever, as far as I'm concerned, in cinema history. Annie puts a chunk of wood between Paul's ankles and already you start thinking, oh, don't, don't you fucking dare. But guess what? She, she does bloody dare and takes a sledgehammer to Paul's ankles, smashing them right in. And yes, she does do both and you see it all the pain must be unbearable and she tells paul she loves him just to make him feel better what a fucking scene so annie is back in town and the sheriff sees her getting angry and he his spidey senses start tingling he has now seen the articles about her and knows she's bloody balmy but realizes she has quoted paul in the papers and has been popping down to the shops buying paper, so he is definitely convinced she's been up to no good. He heads over to the house, but so Paul can't say anything, Annie drugs him again, and he's absolutely out of it. And she hides him just before the sheriff comes a knocking. Annie invites him in as he wants to sniff the place out, because I mean, he, he knows what the shit has gone on. So Annie is talking some shit as he's going around the house about, about writing all the new misery books. And the sheriff is like, nah, fuck off. And he heads upstairs like a rude bastard, but silent as a cat, but not silent enough as Annie sneaks up behind him. And before we think anything bad is going to happen, she's just got a nice cup of tea for him. But like that, he's gone. But suddenly Paul manages to make an absolute bloody racket and the sheriff hears him and he heads back into the house and he sees Paul. But super sadly, he gets shotgunned by Annie right in the back and she has now absolutely lost the plot. And Paul has to reason with her so she doesn't kill him by telling her he needs to finish the book. She agrees and he shoves some gasoline up his butthole and back to writing he goes. And like I said right at the start, remember when I said we see something that would tie into it all later? Well, well, this is now. It's tying in. It's tying in now. He wants his fancy shit for when he finishes the book, the champagne and cigarettes, like I said earlier. And he now he's done. He's giving Annie a taste of her own medicine and quickly pulls the gasoline from his arsehole. And he's going to burn everything he wrote. 
So he does, and Annie falls to the floor, trying to save the pages in a frantic hurry, but gets a right wallop on her head with the typewriter as Paul smashes her right on the fucking bonds. But Annie is double-hard and jumps on Paul, and they tussle, and he goes for her eyes, and she goes for a gun and shoots him. They fall to the floor, and he makes her eat her words. Well, his words. But then she gives him a proper dick kick, but then falls over and smashes her head on a typewriter again. And she's definitely dead, right? Paul Cobra slivers away again, but Annie comes back for one last scare. But Paul manages to grab a pig ornament and murders her face in, and Annie this time is definitely dead. So now it's 18 months later and Paul is back to being a fancy bastard and they are all loving his new book. But he quite clearly is still thinking about the pain and torture he had to endure under the careful care of Annie Wilkes, his number one fan. The end. So that is basically everything that happens in the film, in my own words. Don't act like if you've never seen this before, you're like, oh, but that is such a good synopsis. That is such an amazing run through. I feel like I was watching it. I don't need to. If you've never seen this film, go and fucking watch it. I'll get into why later on, but just go and watch it. And if you have seen this film, then you know that that was fucking brilliant. (laughs) Either way, I hope you enjoyed that part of it. But then we move on to another part, which I know you all love, which is finding out a little bit more about how the film was made and then also some facts. So producer Andrew, I'm not going to fucking pronounce this right, Scheinman read Stephen King's novel Misery on an aeroplane and recommended it to his director partner, Rob Reiner. Reiner eventually invited writer William Goldman to write the film's screenplay. Now, this is where it gets fucking mental, uh, because the part of the Paul Sheldon was originally offered to an absolute shitload of big actors, including William Hurt, who was offered it twice, but then Kevin Klein, Michael Douglas, Harrison Ford, Dustin Hoffman, Robert De Niro, Al Pacino, Richard Dreyfuss, Gene Hackman and Robert Redford. But they all turned it down. Losers. Warren Beatty was also interested in the role, wanting to turn him into a less passive character, but eventually had to drop out as as post-production of Dick Tracy was extended. Eventually, though, Someone suggested James Kahn, who agreed to play the part. Kahn commented that he was attracted by how Sheldon was a role, unlike any of his others. And what I take from that, in all honesty, is most of the time, James Kahn played the tough guy role, but he's also hot-collared, you know, he's, he, he gets angry so quick. And in this film... It wasn't. He wasn't like that at all, and this is why I I think this is one of James Caan's best performances. Because as much as we love this angry little man and you know fucking going off on one and beating the shit out of people, it's nice to see him refined a little bit more. Enough, you know, holding in this potential anger that he's got because he's there for survival, and I think he plays that part really well. But I will get into that a little bit more later as well. Angelica Houston and Bette Midler were both offered the role of Annie Wilkes, but both of them turned it down. But Midler would go later say that she deeply regretted 
this decision. According to Reiner, it was Goldman who suggested that Kathy Bates, a then unknown actress who was theater acting at the time, should portray Annie Wilkes. Let's just say thank God that she did, right? So the film had a budget of around 20 million and the film was a box office success as it grossed 10 million on its opening weekend, finishing second at the box office behind Home Alone. And it eventually finished with 61 million domestically. The film also served well critically where reviews were very positive and not surprisingly, the most talked about aspect was how fantastic the performances were especially the unheard of Kathy Bates, who brings multiple different levels to a potentially one-dimensional maniac. And this incredible performance was rewarded when she won the Oscar for Best Actress, and obviously deservedly so. So we know how Stephen King feels about his movies, right? I mean, he fucking hates most of them, even The Shining. He hates The Shining, but luckily Misery is not on his bad list, as he believes the film to be in his top 10 adaptations of his work. So he must bloody love Rob Reiner as the director, because he also adapted, as I mentioned beforehand, Stan By Me, which King considers his favourite adaptation of any of his work. In fact, King only wanted Reiner to direct Misery, So he's definitely on the right side of Stephen King's critical wrath that we're all very knowledgeable about because he fucking tells us, right? So it might not be loads, but there is a few bits of production info on what went into the making of Misery. But now I move on to the facts. So number one, the original inspiration for King's novel came from a nightmare he had while on a flight. In an interview, he stated that in his dream, he woke up on a plane and there was a woman sitting next to him and said in a crazed voice, I'm your number one fan. Which would be fucking terrifying, right? Sounds like that would make for a good movie. Number two, Annie Wilkes being a murderer of children during her time as a nurse was loosely inspired by Jeannie Jones. She was a nurse who murdered dozens of children in the 70s and 80s. And in 1985, the year I was born, Jones was sentenced to 99 years in prison for her murders. Number three, according to Reiner, James Kahn was hung over for a day of shooting and everything filmed that day had to be thrown out. It's like not only a proper baller move but it's also a proper dick move so you can't say well done or don't be a dick i mean you could but he'll punch you in the face number four during filming kathy bates got frustrated with james khan as he didn't believe in rehearsing very much and she wanted to due to her background in theater but rob reiner told her to channel it into her performance and obviously she did and it turned out fine Number five, despite being set in winter, the film was mostly shot in the spring of 1990 in Nevada. Number six, James Kahn, along with the rest of the crew, were reportedly very excited to shoot the scene where Paul picks the lock and looks around Annie's house. They were all just thrilled to do a scene that didn't revolve revolve around Paul being in bed. And number seven, 
James Kahn claims that to this day, people still ask him, how are your legs, Jimmy? In reference to misery, he says he's heard it at least 100,000 times. So there's the facts that I've got. I love reading them. I love learning them. So if you have any more facts out there about misery, pop them into the comments, pop onto Instagram, wherever you're listening to this, let me know. I want to know. I, I, I want to know everything I can about these films that I talk about. So I'm going to do something now that I really enjoyed doing and racking my brains around. But it's something that I did in the American Psycho episode, because obviously that is a film based on a book. And so is this. So as we all know, that this film is based on a Stephen King novel. And I thought that I would share some differences between the book and the film. This is probably all stuff that you all know already. But if you don't, I mean, it's a treat for you, right? But let's start off with a big one. So in the film, as we know, Annie smashes Paul's ankles in with a big old sledgehammer. But in the book, it goes a lot fucking darker than that. So Annie takes one of Paul's feet off using an axe and then uses a blowtorch on it. And she also does the same to his thumb later on in the book. It's a lot fucking more mental, isn't it? In the film... Annie sets fire to the one and only copy of what Paul was written as the next chapter for Misery. I mean, he does seem like the type of guy that would run out of space on his iClown. But in the book, the draft is not destroyed in the fire. It's just a bunch of non-related paper. So no biggies. And to add to that, that because the manuscript isn't destroyed in the fire scene, he does get out at the end with it all intact where he publishes it where misery does in fact die at the end so annie would be fucking livid so you know the nice sheriff with the sweet stash who unfortunately gets a shotgun blast to the chest well in the book he not only gets stabbed up big time but he also gets run over with a lawnmower i know Poor bloke, hey? I'm I'm happy we didn't get that in the film because the guy that they cast, he's such a sweetheart. I don't want to see him get run over by a lawnmower. In the film, it's almost as if Annie accidentally stumbles upon Paul, her favourite writer in the whole world. But in the book, she's a bit more of a stalker and follows him from his hotel until she sees his crash and rescues him. Well, if you can believe that. While in both the movie and the book, Annie does die at the end. In the movie, she smashes her head on a typewriter, but then comes back for one last scare, but gets battered by a pig statue. But the book once again goes a little crazier. Where Annie does have the same typewriter incident, but comes back by trying to get through a window to get a chainsaw to finally kill Paul, but dies due to massive head trauma. So obviously there is going to be a lot more differences and as usual, as it is with horror novels, they are toned down due to so much not being able to be shown on screen. Take another example, like I've already mentioned, American Psycho, that had so much more in the book that you couldn't depict on screen and in all honesty you probably didn't want to see on the screen. But Misery is not only a fantastic book, but it is way more insane than the film in regards to the violence of Annie Wilkes. That if you have never read it, then it is an absolute must, and it's still one of my favourite Stephen King books. The tension is still there, like it is in the film, but the violence is ramped up big time. I mean, it was 80s Stephen King, so you know what you're getting from him at that time. 
So now we move on to the most important question about it all. How do I feel about misery? I mean, I suppose important to who? I mean, it's important to me. It might not be important to you. But if you want to hear what I think about this film, keep listening. So when I do these solo episodes, like I mentioned at the start, it has to be a film or a topic that I can obviously, as usual, speak honestly and personally about. But I have to have some sort of connection to it. But also, it has to be something that I want to speak to everybody about in detail to give my own opinions and thoughts on the film in its entirety and the different aspects and the people that are in it and make it. So let's let's just start with Rob Reiner. I think that's a good place to start. And the reason being is that we know him as a fantastic director of some really great movies. He adapted another Stephen King novel, well, a short story, which was The Body, which was turned into Stand By Me for the film. And that film, I mean, I love. I've watched Stand By Me growing up like so many of us, and it is still to this day a fantastic movie filled with fantastic performances. And then you have something like Princess Bride, another film. Great film. It's one of those films you can just put on whenever you want. Enjoy the fuck out of it again with amazing performances and there but with misery i feel that it's his definitive film that shows his style as a filmmaker and what i mean by that is he is someone that lets the performances lead and tell the film or depict where the film is and where it's going to go and the performances like they do in misery is what captures you. Rob Reiner, in all honesty for me, isn't someone that is the best in regards to, I don't know, if you're looking at cinematography and thingy bobs like that, there isn't anything in his films where you're going, wow, he set up this shot and it looks like this. It's not like a David Fincher film or, you know, anyone that like that, that where you take a frame from their films and it's like a photograph, it's picturesque. The film just works as it is. He follows the story and he follows the characters and he, he lets all of that draw you in. And I think that that is a really, really big thing and a really incredible thing for a do- director to do, to be able to just trust his own process by allowing, as I said, the performances in the story speak from itself. And that to me, is fantastic filmmaking. And the reason that that stands out to me is because I am someone that loves the aesthetics of movies. I am someone that loves the aesthetics of cinema. You all know by now, if you listen to the show or the YouTube videos or the channel, you know that acting and filmmaking is what I always wanted to do and will always want to do. So watching films like this throughout my whole life, and I watch Misery at a very young age, they're very important to me because they're almost like my homework. I watch these films and I learn from them. And I've always had the aesthetic eye. That's why I love people like Spielberg so much. And as I said, David Fincher, Seven, even though Seven is one of the most disturbing films you could ever see. It's also one of the most beautiful films you will ever see because of the way that it's shot. But there is never anything in the films that Rob Reiner makes 
that it impresses me on a visual style aesthetically and that's why i find his film so fascinating to me because i am so drawn in by the things that he's trying to depict and uh, you know help you understand the most the driving force for rob reiner films is the story and i think that is why he does such a good job when it comes to stephen king you know adapting stephen king novels but ultimately it's the performances and then obviously the best thing to do now is to move on to the performances so this is one of those films where it sort of reminds me not in regards to you know filmmaking aesthetically or anything like that not so much like psycho but it does feel very alfred hitchcock in regards to the tension and dread that it builds out throughout but i'm talking about the performances the reason it reminds me of psycho is because Anthony Perkins performance as Norman Bates is my favorite performance of all time. And is an example of if people say to me, oh, what would I say is a performance that is incredible that I should watch that inspired me? That is one of them. But Misery and Kathy Bates and James Kahn is another example I always give in regards to a perfect chemistry between two people on screen that are so different in their approach, but also in regards to their characters they are actually portraying on the screen. They're so different, but yet they work perfectly. It's just insane how amazing this film is. I've watched this film so many times, and when I do, I sit there, I shut up, I am fucking glued to it because the performances are in this are fantastic. We start off obviously with James Kahn, and I I mentioned it earlier as well, so I don't have to go into too much. But in this film, he's so much more refined. He's so much more laid back in a way than he normally is. And I know that's one of the reasons why he liked doing the role, because he's not, you know, aggressive. But also he realises that he can't be aggressive. I mean, what can he do? So you can see the cogs turning in, in James Kahn's performance or, uh, you know, as Paul, because he's trying to figure it all out. He's trying to have this logicality to him. He's trying to be intellectual about this. He's trying to think, what is it that I need to do to get out of here? And he does that quite quickly. And I really enjoy that. Whereas normally a James Kahn type of character would just be smashing shit up and trying to figure it out. And and they all honestly probably would have died in the first five minutes if he was typical James Kahn. But also I find it really interesting to see the list of people that I mentioned earlier, how many people were thought of before James Kahn. And once again, it becomes another example of, well, although it is a role that other people could quite clearly play, you can't really see anybody other than James Kahn in this role because of how well he plays the character of Paul and what he brings to the film when he needs to be aggressive in the odd bits, he does because he's trying to cover something up. But then he's got that calmness and that gentleness that he thinks that Annie Wilkes needs at that time. When ultimately, you know that in his head, he's like, if I don't play this right, I'm fucked. And in all honesty, out of that list, not many people out of it 
other than him, I think, could do that. So that's why I think that this role is a really, really great one for James Caan. Uh, and one of, if not his best performance, because of it's a different type of role for him, and what a great what a great performance he put in for it. But then we move on to what I feel and what most people obviously feel is the star of the show, the Oscar winner from this film, Kathy Bates, and it's another example of for me personally when I watch her performance in this, I take notes i try and study it because you can feed that into your work as an actor and so on because once again it becomes a perfect performance because it isn't just about what's written down on paper whether it's from stephen king's novel or it's from the written scripts that have been given to the actors it's about what she did with it and it is such an incredible performance because it's a roller coaster of a ride performance. She at some points is so nice that you you want to be with her. She's so motherly in so many of these scenes that when she goes absolutely cockadoodling mental, it throws you for a curve. And the way that she does it, it's so aggressive. And she is obviously, you know, a strong woman. And she's somebody that, in all honesty, you probably wouldn't want to get on the bad side of. And she plays it to a T, absolutely perfect, that when those scenes happen, you're sitting there and you're the, you feel like you're, you know, the one stuck there, almost enclosed, captured and terrified of what she's doing it's everything the way she's doing it, the mannerisms of the way she's doing it the things and the way she's saying it, it, it it's terrifying but yet when she's in those scenes where she is being nice and being motherly it's such a contrast and when you have an actor or an actress that can do something like that it's absolutely phenomenal and that's why i absolutely love kathy bates in it and it is one of my own personal favorite performances of all time but one of the things that i also love about her performance and it is also due to obviously the writing in it and everything that she came up with as well for the court uh, with for the story and for annie wilkes because she did come up with a lot of the backstory herself is it's the conflicting way that you feel towards her character because one minute you genuinely feel for her when she's having those conversations with Paul about her husband and out those long nights uh, in her nurse's shifts. And this is before you learn about, you know, the things you do later. You genuinely do feel sorry for her, even though when she's having these outbursts, but you just feel that she's someone that needs help and she hasn't gotten the right help and she's now you know, way past it. And you just want someone to help her. You want to be, you want to be that person that helps her. You can't, you're just watching a fucking film, but that's how she makes you feel in those scenes. You know, she needs help and you want to give it to her, but you can't. And that's why it's so incredible. But then you get conflicted again because then you, you see all these clippings of all these kids that she potentially murdered. And then you're like, well, no, she's not, she's just a fucking arsehole. And once again, it comes to not only fantastic writing and fantastic character work, but what an amazing performance that one minute you're like, I want to be there for you. I want to help you. But at the same time, 
you fucking murdered kids and you're a nasty person and you've held this man captive and you won't let him go because you're fucking doolally. So once again, it is another credit to the film, the writing and Kathy Bates' performance as Annie Wilkes. And also you do have to mention the other performances in the film because they are fantastic. And there's not many. And that's what I like about this film because it is as secluded as it is in the setting as it is with characters there's not many in it at all and you i genuinely do love the sheriff in it and i hate knowing and seeing that he's gonna die every time i watch it because he's such a nice guy and he quite clearly loves his job and wants a little bit of excitement in this quiet little town and yeah he meets his demise horribly but then also you know, when you're invested in these, you feel like this is part of a real world. And you're like, what a lovely relationship he was having with his wife in it, you know, and they still, you know, she was trying to keep it young by touching his dick a bit. And he was having none of it because he's on his investigative work. <laughs> and it's just such a nice little scene and a little bit of departure away from all the tension and the drama that's going on. And they just work so well together that then within the confounds of confined, you know, element of the film, uh, you know, he never goes home to her. And it's quite sad, isn't it, if you think about it like that. But then once again, that's down to writing and performance that draws you in so much that you'll feel that you're part of this world rather than just watching a movie. Every performance in this film is fantastic. Everything about this film is fantastic. And then obviously one of the things that you have to talk about, one of the most important elements to any film, but especially a film like this that is all about delivering and building that tension and that threat and that drama and that chaos is obviously the soundtrack. And the soundtrack is done by Mark Scheiman or Scheiman or a name that I'm never going to be able to pronounce, but it's fantastic. It, it really works along with the film. You know, there's not a lot, that happens musically when it comes to the conversations in the film. It's just when Paul is getting out of the room and then he's trying to rush back. Without that sort of music, yeah, it would still be a tense scene because of the performances, but it is it made better by this music that's so fucking in your face, very similar to like what I said before, Psycho, where you have those sounds playing and it's going absolutely insane because your heart is racing because you're like, he's got to get back. Although it's halfway through the film, so you know he's going to. But either way, you're in that moment. And part of the reason you're in that moment isn't just the writing, isn't just the performances, it's the sound. Whether it's the score itself or whether it's the sound design where they're putting in these sounds here and sounds there. And this film is another example of getting everything right. So if you haven't guessed it already, I absolutely love Misery. I love I love the book, but I love the film. They are they are very different in ways but very similar. But what I love about the film is just how it goes from start to finish and it just flows. And like I said, most of that is down to two things. The story leading the way the structure as i say leading the way grabbing you and and want immersing you into this world but the biggest part of that is the performances kathy bates and and james khan in this film are phenomenal i would probably say perfect 
and I know people out there might disagree and go, oh, I don't know if they're quite perfect. For me, they are, because anyone that can help influence me in, on my journey in acting and, and, as I said, in filmmaking, but if I am looking at those performances for inspiration for what I might do, that's when things start becoming perfect. And they are so different in this film, but you can take so much from it and from them. So I love watching this film in the aspect of how it will help me deliver anything in regards to, you know, my my own performances or what I might give out there. But I also love it in regards to what you can get out of it filmmaking wise as well, because for me, it's a real eye, eye opener of going, you don't just have to necessarily have the most beautiful shots you've ever seen. And the thing is, this film it is picturesque. I mean, you've got all these beautiful snowy mountains and everything like that. But that's just part of, once again, like I keep mentioning, the, the story. It's not a focal element I mean, it's a focal element in regards to, as I say, the story is in that's the reason they're trapped and they can't leave. But it's not where you're getting some of these most beautiful shots you've ever seen and these picturesque landscapes. There isn't much of that. It's just Rob Reiner going, do you know what? I'm going to make the best film that I can that captures the essence of obviously some of Stephen King's book. It doesn't go as crazy as we know, but it captures the essence of what it would feel like to be held captive by this person that is fucking mental. And it does that perfectly. So I hope that there are people out there like me who love this film, as I said, as much as I do. If you do like this film, hit me up. Let me know get on to our comments on instagram when this episode's released and let me know and tell me what you think about misery what is your favorite parts of this film what do you not like about this film remember this is called the let's talk horror channel for a reason i want to talk about horror if you don't enjoy this film let me know there is no right there is no wrong i sit there and i take from this film what i take from it and you take from it what you take from it what i take from it is a lesson for me on a personal level but I also as a film and I sit there watching it I am engrossed I'm enthralled I absolutely love it because this is the type of film that when Paul Sheldon is sitting there sweating his face off I'm doing the exact fucking thing that he's doing because I'm on the edge of my seat and I've seen this film god knows how many times so I hope that you all out there love misery as much as I do. And let me know if you do and let me know if you don't. So I've spoken about as much as I can about misery as I can do on a, on a solo episode. I've given you the amazing Google synopsis. I've given you the uh, my own version of the events that happen in the entirety of the film. You've got a bit of production info and you've also got some facts. And then I've told you how I feel about the, the film in my own opinion. So now we can move on to the segment that I absolutely love, Your First Time. I say this every episode, but if you don't know what Your First Time is, basically I put out there to all of you amazing horror fans, to send me as a DM, whether it's on Instagram or Twitter or TikTok, your first ever horror movie memory that you can remember. 
I absolutely love reading these and I love sharing them with you all. So let's move on to the first one. So the first one that I've got was sent over to me over on our TikTok page. So if you're not following us over there, make sure you are and make sure you also go and follow the person that sent me this, which is Isle of Movies. Just make sure you search for that on TikTok. And they sent me over this amazing memory. It was 1998. I remember being eight years old and at my best friend's house. Thankfully, he lived next door but one. While his parents were out, he put on a nightmare on Elm Street, the one from 1984. I had an overriding feeling that I was doing something really bad. This was because my mother forbid me from watching any movie out of my age bracket. If I close my eyes, I still remember some boiler room scenes that creeped me out. The name Freddy Krueger to me became like an old wives tale or an urban legend. My older brother's friend would talk about him as if Freddy was real. Thank God he's not, because obviously we'd all shit ourselves and never sleep. Safe to say it had an impact on me. Fast forward 10 years later, and I would have the entire box set and call it one of my favourite horror gems. So that amazing story, as I say, was sent over to me from Isle of Movies on TikTok. But they also have a YouTube channel, which is Rob Zombie is God. So make sure you go and subscribe over there and follow them on TikTok for some amazing movie and horror related content. And it's a fantastic story once again. And what I love about it is he mentions this sort of uh, the taboo of of horror and how it's a can be seen such a bad thing by other people and uh, be setting rules and restrictions against it but yet we love watching it because it's bad because it's a, like a naughty thing to do isn't it when we were kids we'd sit down watching horror films and you'd be like oh, i hope nobody finds out not that it mattered to me because uh, nobody gave a fuck what i was watching but i know there's a lot of people out there who have uh, people that do care about what they watch and uh, it's, it, it was a bad thing for people to do and uh, even when i was younger and uh, I would be sitting there and watching these films and I'd be like, oh, should I be watching these? And then I'd be like, yeah, I am. So what a feeling. It's, it's just horrors. We love it no matter what, no matter whether it's good or bad or whatever. It is a great one. So, yeah, thank you so much for sending this story over to me. And I'll move on to the next one. So the next memory I've got for you is one that I love because it's detailed, really detailed. And that's what I love. Why? Because you all know that I don't just want people to send these in so then I can put it into the episode so then you can listen to it. I love reading these because I get so nostalgic about the films that you talk about and it reminds me of my own memories of them. So please, just for that, make sure you're sending them in. But I know that all of you people, you listeners, you amazing horror fans out there love listening to them. So that's why I love putting them into the show. And this one, as I said, is a nice detailed one. So this one was actually sent to me first on TikTok, but because you only have a certain amount of characters on there, they were nice enough to pop over to Instagram and send me the full story in detail and this is from and i know that i'm going to pronounce your your name wrong so it's from lisa blaise or blaise or it's b-l-a-i-s um they sent me that as i said on instagram but they're on tiktok as well so make sure you go and give them a follow because they are a big fan of horror and they put my first horror experience it was child's play i was eight years old and i sat in my family room between my mum and dad and we watched the movie at one point, I remember getting up and hiding behind my couch or I'd bury my face into a pillow, but I remember loving it. Well, that's the main thing, right? 
Well, my bedroom was also in the basement and my parents' room was two floors up. It was an odd backsplit house. It went down a hill. Anyways, my room had two floor ceiling shelving units uh, on either side of a window. These shelves had all my books and my dolls. Well, after my parents said goodnight to me and went upstairs, I climbed up my shelves to reach all of my dolls and I brought them all down. There must have been about 20 or 30 of them. I brought them all down and then I promptly threw each one out the window onto the lawn lawn in the backyard. Then I closed my window and slept with the lights on for a week. To this day, Child's Play or Chucky has been one of my favourite films to watch over and over. And that started my love of horror movies. And specifically, I have a fondness for horror movies with dolls. They scare me the most. And the other big love is ghost and paranormal and first person point of view and found footage horrors. But yeah, it was my parents who started my journey and love of horror. What a lovely story, eh? Because one, it's like a family thing. They got to watch horror films together and not many families in all honesty do that. And if you are a family out there that does that, you're so lucky. Because obviously I never really had that when I was a kid. Uh, It was just me. Uh, until I managed to convince my friends that horror films were the best fucking thing in the world and you should be out watching them with me. And then that carried on forever. And I would make people who don't like watching horror films watch them so I could enjoy the film and then watch them shit themselves. It's a great thing, really, horror. (laughs) But, yeah, that's an incredible story. I'm sure you can agree that she sent me over. So make sure you go and follow Lisa Blaze that... That I'm, I apologise that I sell your name wrong, but it said it's Lisa B L A I S over on TikTok as well as Instagram. Once again, I apologise profusely how bad I've pronounced your name, but you know who you are, and a massive thank you for sending it over. I love this segment, you know I do. That's why I put it in. So if you would like a shout out, I mean, in all honesty, think of it like free promotion for whatever content you bring out whether it's a youtube channel or a podcast whatever it is all you've got to do is pop over to any of our social medias and send me a direct message of your first of a ever horror movie memory in detail and i'll put it in one of these episodes and not only do i enjoy reading it my listeners enjoy listening to it well i hope you do you all tell me you do if you don't then you're fucking liars So that will do it. That is the end of another episode. I really, really hope you've enjoyed it. Like I said at the start, solo ones for me now are harder for me. They make my anxiety go fucking mental. You've probably heard it on this episode because I, no matter what I do, whether it's an episode that's solo or with a guest, every episode I bring out, I want it to be something that you will all enjoy and i really hope you do so what i want you amazing listeners to do is if you really like the solo episodes still and it's worth me doing let me know if you don't like the solo episodes anymore then let me know i need your feedback Uh, this show is always going to evolve because i want it to But I would really like to keep doing these solo episodes. But if you think they're shit, then I'm not going to do them anymore. Um, So if you've enjoyed this episode and my more sort of detailed or more personal thoughts on this, this film that we've spoken about, Misery, 
and you were like, it's it's fine not having a guest every now and again, then let me know. But if you didn't like it, let me know. And uh, I'll think about never doing one again, because then I don't have to pass out every second or feel like I'm going to. But as I said, it's important for me to try and bring out episodes that are different and try and bring out episodes that I am happy with and enjoy doing, as well as hoping that you enjoy listening to them. So as I said, please make sure you let me know whether you enjoyed this episode. And if you did, well, then you know what to do. You need to pop on to whatever platform you're listening on. If you're on here, whatever platform you're listening to right now, what are you listening to? Oh, I'm on I'm on Spotify. Oh, okay. Well, at the top of the page, there's a little thing that's like a star. That's a rating button. Click that right now. You rated the episode. Please be nice. <laughs> or what? Hang on. You're on Apple Podcasts. Yeah, that's right. Well, right down the bottom, you can put some little stars in. Make that one a five, please. And then write a review. You have no idea how much this helps because I can only do so much. I can sit and record and do everything. And I say this all the time, but I can only sit and do this and release the episodes and promote it. You listening and you sharing it on and you reviewing it and rating it is what helps the show evolve. And so far this year, the show has done amazing. And that is all down to you. It is all down to you. I can only do so much. I just sit here, enjoy what I do, and hope that you enjoy what I bring out. And if you are, then thank you. But what you are doing is amazing so far. I am getting more and more listeners every month I bring one out. Do I want to bring out more? You know I do. I say that every month I bring one out. Would I like to bring more episodes out? Yes, but I can't. It's as simple as that. Unless I start getting paid to do this shit, which is never going to fucking happen. Who's going to pay me to fucking do this shit? Um, so if you are enjoying these episodes, like I said, it seems that you are, then thank you. And you are showing it and I'm seeing it. So thank you to everyone that has shared the show on so far. Thank you to everyone else that has been rating the show recently or reviewing the show I love you all. You are all amazing and you are helping the show do what I want it to, which is reach new audiences and evolve. Every day I'm having conversations like I did when I first started about horror, but now I'm having even more conversations every day about this incredible genre. And I'm also seeing that in regards to the YouTube channel as well, because I'm getting more subscribers more often on that as well. And I'm uploading more videos as well. And I hope that that continues because I have something that I've had that I want to do for the YouTube channel. And I've been wanting to do it for a long time because it is the next big, and I mean big, evolution for the channel. But unfortunately, things take time. And time is something that I don't have. And it is all something that I will have to work very hard on to release it and give, you know do it in the way that I want to do it. And get, do it to the high standard that I like to. So look out for that. But in the meantime, make sure you go over to our YouTube channel and subscribe to it. All you got to do is look at whatever I do, whether it's a podcast or YouTube or any of our platforms, whether it's Instagram, TikTok or Twitter. I nearly forgot them all then. But whatever it is, just look for the Let's Talk Horror channel and you'll see it. And then that'll be me, me or my Todd. I remember I do all this all on my own. That is it. Everything you see, the promotion, the posters, the artwork, everything is all me. 
So I put a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of love, a lot of passion and a lot of honesty into this show, into the YouTube channel, into this whole channel. And knowing that you enjoy it or the people that let me know that they enjoy it, it, it's, it makes it all worth it. And it helps me in regards to my creativity and my anxiety and everything like that. Although maybe not this episode so much because, you know, it's fucking terrifying doing it because you might all hate my voice and might think this episode is boring as fuck. But as I said, I really hope that you haven't. So as I said, make sure you go and follow everything that my amazing for your first time stories the people that sent me those in make sure you go and follow them on wherever it was tiktok and instagram and please make sure that you head over to any of the podcast platforms rate and review the show if you enjoyed it make sure you follow us on all of our social medias make sure that you go and subscribe to the youtube channel and make sure that you just keep on going through this journey through horror with me not every episode is going to be a solo one. And if you don't like them, probably won't do one ever again. But if you do, let me know. Thank you all so much for everything you've done for me and the channel in 2023 so far. We've got a long way to go. A lot of movies to talk about. A lot of guests to have on the show. And a lot of incredible Instagram lives every month as well. You know I've got those and I love them. So make sure you stay with me and stay creepy.